Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. Hello, good to be back with you. Hope you've had a good week. We've certainly had a busy week. What with one thing and another, Apple Pay has arrived in New Zealand. And the other day, I did my first Apple Pay transaction. It's fun because the retailers in New Zealand aren't used to Apple Pay yet either. So if you get lucky, you have this shared glorious experience of trying something new for the first time. So I was in the organic store actually buying some kombucha. If you haven't tried kombucha from your local organic store, then give it a go. It's this fermented tea. It's delicious and very good for you, they say. There's all sorts of good good qualities, good redeeming qualities. And when I gave up alcohol quite a while ago now, I kind of missed the ceremony of having something with dinner. And I was looking for something. And uh, finally, Bonnie actually found kombucha at the organic store. And she said, try this. And it's really, really good. And you can get all sorts of different flavors. You can make your own. And my oldest son, Richard, and I have got into this making our own kombucha thing. And it's quite fun because you can add different flavors, try different blends, experiment with different things. And it's really good. So I was picking up some kombucha at the organic store while we wait for our next lot of kombucha to do its thing and be ready to drink here at home. And I went up to the counter at the organic store and I placed my watch authoritatively (laughs) by the contactless payment thing and double tapped the side button. And then I got a tap on my wrist and that was that. It was very good. And the person behind the counter was most impressed. So that's Apple Pay. And for those of you who've had it for some time, particularly in the US, you know, this will be old hat by now. But wow, it was fun. We are getting ready to head over to the United States right now. We're going to see friends around the country and also to see Bonnie's family. And when we were starting to think about this trip, I said to Bonnie, if we're going to do this, I would really like to do it at election time. I did US political history As an undergraduate, I follow politics closely all around the world and particularly enjoy following U.S. politics because there are so many colorful characters and complexities and and things like that. So we are going to be doing that and we will be in the United States over the election period and it should be fascinating. So we do have some stuff in the can for the blind side while we're away, but we may well be able to pick up some other interesting interviews while we're in the United States for playing later. We're going to be going to see the Beatles Love Show as well, which I'm extremely excited about. If you've followed my work over the years, you know that I'm a Beatles collector and a Beatles nut. And so we're going to the Mirage in Las Vegas to see the Love Show. And apparently the audio is just absolutely incredible. Even listening to the 5.1 surround sound mix of Love here on our system is wonderful, but... I believe that what happens at the Mirage, it takes it to a completely new level. So really excited about that. And with so many flights that we're taking in such quick succession, I thought that we should investigate one of these little luggage tracking device things. And that was further emphasized by the fact that our guest on this week's Blindside podcast, Emma Benison, who is the president of Blind Citizens Australia, came to stay with us. And her bag went missing. She was just catching a short flight, really, from Tasmania to New Zealand, to Wellington. 
and the bag didn't get loaded on the plane. And you know, that's stressful when you've got stuff and you're in another country and the bag just doesn't turn up. There are multiple devices that try and help with this. The one that was available quite quickly here in New Zealand is called a track dot. It's quite a small device, kind of like a matchbox sized device, I guess. And it uses cellular networks around the world, anywhere where there's GSM, it latches on to a GSM network and it can tell you where your bag is. It's also supposed to have a Bluetooth function, but I've had some difficulty getting that to work reliably with my iPhone 7 Plus. But when it does work, it's pretty neat because once you're within 30 feet of your phone, it starts to vibrate and the closer you get to your bag, in which this little track dot is placed, the quicker the phone vibrates. So if I could get it to work stably, that'd be great. But even just having it send a text message to you when you land or a notification to tell you that your baggage is landed too, hopefully in the same city as you, that's great. And if you get that sinking feeling when you're waiting for your luggage to come through on the carousel and it doesn't, and you know, they usher you off into this little room, don't they? And you've got to fill in the paperwork and you think, oh goodness, how long am I going to be without my stuff? Now you're in control because you can bring up this app and it will report the last time it saw your bag. It's pretty slick technology actually, because when it detects that the aircraft is taxiing and it's about to take off, I guess through through acceleration it detects this, the track dot puts itself into airplane mode. And when you land and you taxi to the terminal, it detects that too, and it takes it out of airplane mode and starts phoning home, just like ET. So we'll see how the track dot goes, but we do have it now. And we'll be taking it along with all our other things, like all the adapters you have to take when you go to another country. And it should be a fun visit. Looking forward to catching up with friends and family. Now, as I say, our guest this week is Emma Benison. She's the president of Blind Citizens Australia. She's been in the position for about a year. She's also accomplished in many other areas. She's a CEO. She's a singer-songwriter. So there's lots to talk with Emma about. And we'll do that shortly on the Blind Side podcast. Well, folks, life is getting a little dull around here at Mushroom FM, and I thought it was high time that we had another Sound of Music promo. But I did one better than Jonathan. I managed to waltz on over to the Abbey to whistle on the stair, and I got the Mother Superior herself to help me out with this one. So if you like a show with a wide-ranging, eclectic mix of music, a show where anything goes, then you might just want to take a listen to this helpful advice from the Good Reverend Mother. Tune in the Sarah Hillis show on weekdays There you will find your perfect music mix And on the Sarah Hillis show on weekdays You'll get a fantastic 50s through 80s fix When is the Sarah Hillis show on weekdays? Monday to Friday, 4 to 6 p.m. It's 4 to 6 Eastern Time Just think of this little rhyme And I won't have to tell you once again To tune in the Sarah Hillis Show on weekdays On the home of the fun guys That's Mushroom Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email Send an audio file or write it down and email the blindside 
at mosin.org. Since we'll soon be crossing the ditch, as we say here in New Zealand, to hear from Emma in Australia, I thought we'd cross the ditch now and read an email that's come in from Peter Cliff. Hi, Peter. And he writes, I had been listening to your podcast where you discussed your difficulty with dealing with lawyers in regards to reading your will. In my case, the law firm was very accommodating in sending me an emailed copy of the original hard copy before signing. However, I had a different reaction from the public trustee's office here in Perth, Western Australia. When I was required to sign an application for power of attorney for my wife, who was unable to continue with conducting her financial affairs. In this case, the solicitor insisted that somebody should sign the document on my behalf. (laughs) Ironic, really, isn't it, Peter, given that you haven't given them power of attorney? After much haggling, it was decided that someone could witness my signing. Legislation could be enacted in these circumstances, however, public or private advocacy through organisations or individuals is the only procedure at this stage. Thank you for your podcast, Jonathan. It is most enjoyable. Thank you, Peter. I appreciate it. And a very stressful time if you're in a position where you have to sign a power of attorney for your wife. So you don't need disability-related discrimination piling upon that stress. But I'm glad you were able to reach a compromise and, uh, and, and good on you for insisting on one. Just before we go to our interview, a quick reminder about one item that you can find in the Mosin Consulting Store. It's top of mind for me at the moment because, as I say, we're heading over to the States shortly. And the internet is by default a global medium. You can access anything from anywhere, but there are certain content providers who don't like it being so. And so you end up with some content that is geo-blocked. That can be a hassle in a number of situations. If you know that there's a treasure trove of audio-described content somewhere, but you can't access it because of your geographic location, if you travel overseas and you find that you can't access a service that you use all the time at home because it's geo-blocked, a whole bunch of scenarios like that, it's a pain. Maybe there are some free apps available in other iTunes stores that are not available in your iTunes store. We deal with all of these things, breaking down the barriers of geoblocking in an audio book called Imagine There's No Countries. I use it here in New Zealand to get content from all around the world, apps and all the various iTunes stores when the app isn't available by default here in New Zealand. So it is full of really useful tips to make the most of the internet and get the content you want no matter where in the world you are. How to appear that you're in a different country from the one you're in. A whole bunch of other stuff like that. It's done in audiobook format so you can sit there and follow along with the instructions and hopefully gain access to a whole lot more content as a result. If you want to find out more, go to the website at mosen.org. That's M-O-S-E-N org and choose the store link and from there you'll find a link to the page for the audiobook Imagine There's No Countries. It's available in MP3 and Daisy Audio. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on the blind side. Blind Citizens Australia is Australia's consumer advocacy organisation. In last week's edition of the podcast, we spoke with Clive Lansing, who is president of Blind Citizens New Zealand. And it just so happens that here in the studio at Mosin Towers, we have the president of Blind Citizens Australia, Emma Benison, who's here on a visit. And we'll talk a bit about why she's here shortly. Welcome, Emma. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Jonathan. It's really nice to be here. You had a bit of drama with your luggage <laughs> coming to New Zealand. That's always stressful when that happens, isn't I it? I did, yeah. I'm made it but my luggage didn't and Mm. um so I got in at midnight 
um, on Sunday night. And uh, all I could do really was grab some toiletries from the airport staff and run away to my hotel and sort of, you know, hope for the best. And uh, my bag finally got returned to me last night, so... I'm happy now. Yeah, but it's better. never pleasant. And no. you wonder when is it going to happen, you know. Yeah, that's like right. Waiting for the rapture, but different. Yes, yes. that's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about Blind Citizens Australia for those who aren't familiar with the organisation. What are its origins? Because I know that originally it was called the National Federation of Blind Citizens of Australia. So was it in any way inspired by the National Federation of the Blind in the United States? Um, oh, I think perhaps loosely, but... Um, you know, it's it's forty years old. Started in in nineteen seventy five, out of a um, an interest among a number of blind and vision impaired people to have an organisation that really was um, of and for blind people. So um, very much based on that consumer model, um, having a a voice, a strong voice. Um, of and for blind people wanting to ensure that people had um, an opportunity to um, come together and advocate on on issues but also to have really strong um, localized peer support and really essentially that's still the um, the premise on which the organization operates today um, we still have local branches um, across Australia uh, and we still have a very strong, um, advocacy role in terms of, um, you know, advocating for for the rights of people who are blind or vision impaired across, you know, all walks of life. And I suppose, you know, we've had some really interesting highlights over the past 40 years um, in terms of getting things like audible traffic signals um, in Australia, which, of course, you know, most people these days take for granted. Um, but it's that's been a really important um, thing and, and a really visible thing that when you say to sighted people, you know, those audio traffic signals, those beeping lights, they go, oh, yeah, yeah. So it's something tangible. Um, and there have been, you know, many other things um, in recent times. You will probably have heard that we've got a new um, $5 note <laughs> in Australia with a tactile marking on it. Um, Why just the five dollars? Is that is that the start? Are they phasing the in? Yeah, they're phasing they in. Yeah. So so it's got like a dot on it, and um, and then the ten dollar note will have two, and the twenty will have three, and so on and so forth, um, and that will be rolled out over the next uh, next few years. So. I, re I read a bizarre news headline about this last mm. weekend, where mm. they were saying that you could play a vinyl record using the Australian five dollar note, and I didn't quite understand. Really? how that worked, but they were talking about the one to $5 note in Australia, and they did mention the tactile markings, but there was also this weird article about how you could play a vinyl record wow. using the $5 note, and that, that seemed quite extraordinary. That's, that's ext I hadn't heard that. Yeah, you need to you need to dig that out. I need to catch yeah. up. It could be a great party this could, trick. This could be a yeah. lot of fun. Yeah. Maybe I'll use it on my next album. Yeah. <laughs> 1975 is quite late. Um, mm. it, were there individual state-based blindness advocacy organisations before then and NFBCA was just kind of a, a, an amalgamation at a national level of all of them? Um, I think there were some individual state um, advocacy efforts, but I don't think they were, um, as far as I know, I don't think they were specific organisations as such. Um, so, you know, BCA or NFBCA, as it was then known, was really the first um, national attempt to bring everybody together. Um, it started in Melbourne, but, you know, quickly other states 
um, followed and became in, involved. So, and we've just actually had our um, state conventions. So, um, they're an opportunity for people in each state to come together and discuss emerging issues that impact on them locally. Um, and we do them one year and then the next year we have a national convention. And the other reason that we do that is because, of course, Australia is a very big country and um, the cost of getting everybody together for a national convention every year is quite significant. Um, and so, you know, that's that's certainly part of the reason why we do it that way. But it also is a really great way to get local issues on the agenda of the national um, organisation and the, and to bring it to the board's attention, I guess. When we were talking with Clive Lansing in the last episode of the podcast, we talked about how Blind Citizens New Zealand's founding really was stemmed from discontent about the sheltered workshop environment in which many blind people who founded the organisation were working. To what extent did any sense of dissatisfaction with blindness services from service providers play a part in the formation of Blind Citizens Australia? Yeah, my understanding is that that, that was a driver. Um, there was discontent with, you know, with the, the service organisations um, basically making decisions um, on behalf of people who are blind or vision impaired uh, and, you know, a lack of, of consultation and um, a lack of a voice uh, in those agencies of people who are blind or vision impaired. So I think it def that definitely was... Um, a certainly a motivating factor. Um, mm. And you've had a number of really <clears throat> talented, able leaders in Blind Citizens Australia over the years who've made a yeah. difference not just at the blindness level but at a kind of a pan-disability level. And, mm. of course, we've already spoken on the podcast to Graham Innes, who's mm -hmm. made an enormous contribution worldwide. The other thing that really stands out for me when I think about Blind Citizens Australia is all the advocacy work they did for Radio for the Print Handicapped, as it was called. Yes. And that took a lot of effort, not just, I guess, proof of concept, but also gaining the standard AM radio frequencies to make that happen because that's something that the US did not get. They did not mm. get standard, by and large anyway, they didn't get standard uh, broadcast frequencies for those services. No, that's right. And and it really um, was a, a major effort and has really stood the network in, in good stead. It's still a very strong um, network. I mean, you know, obviously over time um, the you know, the RPH model is is going to change because as, you know, as people get more technologically connected and, you know, change the way that they access information, that's going to have an impact. But I do think that there is still a really strong and important role for um, the RPH network. And um, I'm personally very pleased that um, that we have it. I think it's, it's a very useful mechanism for communicating not only information to people who are blind or vision impaired but also um, information about about blindness services and about you know events and opportunities and um, I was talking with the um, Arts Access Network here yesterday about how to promote things like audio described events and you know talking about the importance of radio um, as a mechanism to, for doing that so you know it is a very important um, network for us in Australia. Mm. Do, do you have any kind of data on how many people listen to RPH stations on a regular basis? How how popular are they? Mm. It's really, really difficult to know exactly. 
um, how many people listen, but it's certainly something that I know RPH Australia um, is doing some work on. So that's like the national peak um, body that sort of oversees RPH, the RPH stations around the country. Um, but it is it is um, true to say that you know people people are actually listening, and it's not just from what I understand people who are blind or vision impaired or people with print disability, um, there there is a quite a significant listenership amongst people like um, taxi drivers, for example, um, or people who are doing, you know, work that requires them to use their hands um, where they want to read the newspapers and there's no other way for them to do that while they're, while they're working. So, um, so I think the listenership is there, but yeah, it is. It's very difficult to get clear data about um, about the the actual figures. And you don't have any objections from the publishers about the fact that this is reaching a much wider audience than perhaps was originally anticipated. Um, well, I don't. No, we don't. And I, but I think um, I think you know, obviously, it's very important. And I know that the RPH stations um, adhere to this. That you know the. the the purpose of the stations is chiefly for people with print disability and, um, you know, that's why they exist and that's what they're there for and, you know, the bulk of their content has to be, um, you know, information, informational. Um, but, yeah, look, I think it's inevitable that people are going to switch, they're going to switch to it and, and hear it and go, oh, this is, this is really helpful, you know, for me. So um, I think people accept that there's a certain amount of that that, that occurs. If you were to, as somebody who's done a bit of traveling and also a lot of reading about the blindness scene around the world, if you were mm. to kind of offer a, a subjective analysis, how um, good is it to be a blind Australian? Uh, how does it stack up compared with other countries that people like to compare themselves, like the US? Yeah, look, I think, um, I think there are some things that you know, that we do um, well. I mean, um, <clears throat> I think I think we've, I think the area where I, re that really jumps out at me um, at the moment where we are significantly lagging behind is in terms of audio description on Australian television. Um, at the moment we have, we have none. Um, at, and, you know, we're really a long way behind um, most other, you know, Western countries. So um, that's something where I think we really do have we do have a lot more work to do um, in terms of making sure that people um, people can access audio description. And um, it's it's disappointing in the sense that we've had a number of trials um, on both on free-to-air TV um, on our public broadcaster, the ABC, um, but also through their online catch-up service, which is called ABC iView. Um, but unfortunately, you know, the trials have been funded by the Commonwealth Government and um, because there's no actual legislation that covers audio description um, on TV in Australia, it's very hard to get beyond uh, the trials. So, you know, that's an area where... We, I think, are really um, quite lagging behind. Um, but I think, um, I think we've got, you know, because we're also because we're such a vast country, and because um, of the fact that, you know, educationally, most people are now 
um, in integrated mainstream education settings, um, it's getting it's getting harder to bring people who are blind and vision impaired, particularly younger people, to bring people together. So, you know, that's an area where I think we've got to work a bit harder and particularly BCA I think has a role to work quite hard to get people um, enthused and, and make sure that people um, are being are getting what they want from um, the consumer organisation so that they have a reason to um, come and be part of it and and that it's not just about, you know, meetings or, you know, things that people perceive as perhaps a bit boring, that it's actually about, you know, people coming together to do things that they actually enjoy or, you know, have a social activity or whatever it is. So um I think I think they're probably two of the key um challenges. We've we've got the NDIS as well, the National Disability Insurance Scheme um coming on board. And that presents some really exciting opportunities um for people who are blind or vision impaired. Um and I think that over time hopefully you know, we will see some real benefits of that in terms of people being able to have the choice um, and control over where they and how they spend um, the funds that are allocated to them to receive services. And I think it will uh, really have an impact on the way that service providers um, deliver their their services and there'll be more um, choice about, you know, there'll be new service providers, I think, coming into the market and more choice for people about how they receive services. You know, for example, there's a lot of talk at the moment about, um, you know, orientation mobility services, for example, starting to be delivered out of hours. Um, so, you know, if you want your O&M on a Saturday morning now, you can you can have it. So I think, you know, that's going to be a really exciting opportunity in Australia, um, providing we make sure that consumers' um, choice and control is you know, remains at the centre of it and providing that it, that we don't become complacent um, about that because otherwise, you know, we would it would be dangerous if we got into a position where, um, you know, the choice in control was uh, was in name only and, and in fact we ended up with, with service providers dictating the way that people access their services. So um, I'm hoping that we're moving away from that and um, the service providers are listening more closely to what, um, blind and vision impaired people actually want. Yes, I've been watching this with a lot of interest since Julia Gillard unveiled it, and then it seems that it was kind of a pet project of her. She got quite passionate about the scheme and its implementation. How does it work in practice? Does each person get their own finite bucket of money, or is there some sort of assessment process that determines how much funding everyone gets? Yeah, so it's really new. Um, so, I mean, I personally haven't been through the process yet myself, but my understanding is that um, what happens is that people get, uh, they go to a what's called a planning meeting and it's very much goal-oriented. So they go to the meeting and they they need to come prepared to have thought about not only what what is it that they're currently receiving, um, but what is it that they would like to receive in the future um, in terms of services in order to make sure that they can achieve their goals and aspirations. Now, that's a really significant shift in thinking for a lot of people, um, not only people who are blind vision impaired, but people with disability generally, particularly for those who've um, 
who've not had much choice about their lives up until now. Um, you know, maybe they've been living um, in institutions or maybe they've got, they've been living in situations where other people have been making, you know, life decisions for them. So, um, you know, that's a big shift for people to start thinking aspirationally about what they would like to see, um, what they would like to have in their lives. So they go to that planning and assessment kind of meeting and um, then they they have a plan put in place. They then have the choice um, as to whether to self-manage that, um, that budget um, or whether to get the agency or another service provider, um, a nominated service provider, to manage it on their behalf. So there's a fair bit of flexibility there and everybody's plan will be individualised. Um, and so, you know, that means that there's there's some seeming inconsistency sometimes around, you know, some people getting a particular piece of equipment, someone else might not get that piece of equipment. So it's it's really important, I think, for people to be going into it clear about what they what they actually want um, and why they want it. So, hmm. so will that make it potentially possible for somebody to get equipment who may be a homemaker, for example, yeah. but with apps on smartphones these days, sometimes it can really add to your independence and quality of life and even safety to have a good quality smartphone. But in the past, a lot of funding has been wrapped up in vocational goals. Mm. Yeah, look, I think that's right. Um, it will. I think the, the litmus test with it is about, you know, what is it that people need um, to be able to live a full and productive life, what what is it? Um, what would make that possible? So, um, the example that I often use is, if people want to go to the gym, um, the NDIS wouldn't, for example, pay for your gym membership, but they would pay um, for somebody to attend the gym with you to assist you to to navigate the gym. Um, which, as you know, can often be yeah. <laughs> quite challenging. Yeah. Um, so it is really about, yeah, not it's it's about making sure that um, people have the services and supports to you know to be able to do whatever it is they want. So, for example, if I want to go and take my children camping for the weekend, um, you know, I should be able to do that um, with with support, um, which is something I can't do at the moment. So. It's potentially a bottomless pit, though, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I think it's, I mean, the, the buzzwords are reasonable and necessary. Okay. So, you know, there is, I think there are, there are some limitations. I mean, um, but I think really it's about, you know, being realistic about what it is that you need, what it is that um, will make, will make your, your life productive and make you a contributing member of, of society. So, um, yeah, look, I know, I think it potentially could be a bottomless pit, but there are, I mean, there is legislation that underpins it um, and, you know, there are particular processes that you have to go through. Um, so it's not just a, it's not just a, you know, an endless bucket of money. Although New Zealand has some anomalies with its social mm -hmm. security system, like Australia, we have a pretty generous uh, social security benefit in place for blind people. Australia's done pretty well in that regard, fending off mm. some attempts over the years to change it for the worse. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, there have been some attempts to to take the um, disability support pension blind away. Um, 
and yes, you know, we have worked really, really hard um, to, yeah, as you say, fend those off. Um, I think, you know, we need to continue to be very vigilant um, about that and just to to make sure that, um, you know, that we're, that we keep, I guess, a watching brief on how the NDIS is impacting on people's lives and, you know, what what the implications are for the the disability support pension blind and um, just making sure that we continue to to collect evidence from people about how that's how that process is rolling out for them. It's not means tested in any it's way, not. correct? So you that's can right. continue to work yep. and receive that. And how much yep. is that on a weekly basis? Um, it it varies for you know whether you're a single person or a couple. Um, so I th- I think from memory it's around about three hundred and th- oh no I can't remember the exact amount, but it's um it does vary depending on whether you're a single or a, or a couple, whether you you know studying and so forth, because there are additional allowances that you can get for studying and an additional mobility allowance um, that's available if you're you know travelling to employment or or study so um but it is it is um not means tested and i guess the rationale behind that is that whether or not you're working or you know or earning an income there is still a cost associated with um with disability and there is still a cost associated specifically with with blindness um and you know that so that that cost doesn't go away um, just because you are earning an income and that if you had to cover that cost out of your own pocket, then, you know, that would um, necessarily limit um, your ability to, you know, do the other things that you want to be able to do in life. So, um, yeah, that's the that's the rationale behind mm. that, yeah. Playing devil's advocate <laughs> for a second then, if the NDIS is meeting the specific disability-related costs that a person incurs, does that philosophical justification hold water anymore when it could potentially, I mean, it's a cash payment that could potentially be squandered? Mm. I mean, it's a it's a, it's a, a question that, um, that we certainly are looking at and, and considering all the time. Um, and I think really it's it comes down to a question of, whether the NDS NDIS um, really will be meeting all of people's um, disability-related costs, and we, you know, we just haven't seen. I don't think we haven't gone far enough down the track to to know all the answers yet. Um, but you know, I think um, I think it's it's a watch this space um, to see how that plays out over time. Given that the provisions that blind people enjoy in Australia are so much more generous than the provisions other disability mm. groups enjoy, do, is that a source of friction and tension? Um, it can be. Yeah, it can be. I mean, personally, I would like to see um, that all all people with disability had access to a non-means-tested um, payment. You know, costs of disability are, are high no matter, you know, what impairment you have. Um, I mean, my day job is in a cross disability role, so I know that I know that very well. Um, but certainly, I think um, I think we should be we should be working towards everybody with disability having having access to that kind of payment, if that were possible. You mentioned earlier about the challenges in getting more people involved in this day and age in an organisation mm-hmm. like Blind Citizens Australia, and this seems to be a refrain that we're hearing from a number 
of consumer organizations around the world that they're kind of 20th century structures still, mm. that they're based on branches or chapters, whatever the local terminology mm. is, and that people just are less inclined to turn up to these meetings, these gatherings and join meetings mm. now. Mm. How are you going to lead the organization through a process of being more nimble and agile and using newer means of engaging people? Mm. Yeah, look, I think I think it's absolutely crucial that we um, think differently about the way that we engage members. And so, I mean, social media is an obvious avenue for doing that. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of social media, so that's a no-brainer as far as I'm concerned, but I don't know that that's the only solution. Um, I also really think that um, one of the things we have to do is to really start to think about, you know, what it what it is that people want from a consumer organisation in, in 2016, you know, um, and and what is it that um, we can do that's, that's unique um, from a consumer perspective um, because there are things that um, BCA or any consumer organisation can and should be doing, I think, that um, that a service provider just just can't or shouldn't um, because, you know, they are they are very different different beasts. And so I think really we've got to we've got to look at the issues and say, right, well what what are the key issues and what are the issues that are going to get people interested in this organization, you know? Um, whether it's braille literacy or whether it's audio description or whatever it is, whether it's um, you know, aged aged care funding, whatever. Um, I think we've really got to think carefully about A, what what are the issues? And then B, how do we actually um, how do we build a level of interest in those issues that's not not just about people coming together for a, for a meeting, um, but that really get, gets people excited and inspired? So I think, you know, we've got to be a, a, a lot more creative and innovative in the way that we um, we campaign and in the way that we engage people. Um, because I think particularly for young people, if they look at an organisation like BCA, um, you know, they might be thinking, well, well, what, you know, what relevance does that have for me? I think particularly as technology has improved, there's, I think there's a little bit of um, somewhat understandable complacency that says, well, we've got, we've got a lot of the things we need now, you know, so we don't really need, we don't really need to engage with BCA. But when an issue like audio description on TV comes up, you know, that's something that everyone can get behind and really start to engage with. So it's finding those issues and then finding ways to get people involved. And I think the other thing that we've been trying to do is start to um, develop our younger leaders. Um, in fact, we've been doing it from both ends, really. We've we've um, formed a former leaders advisory group because we really felt we needed to engage with the wisdom of our former leadership because, as you say, we've got some real talent there. Um, and and then at the same time, we're also um, asking those leaders to help to mentor some of our younger emerging um, leaders who we really want to see acting as champions um, for the work that we're doing. So, um, so yeah, I'm I'm excited by those opportunities, but it is it is going to take time, and I'm not very patient. So, 
(laughs) (laughs) That's a really interesting strategy about the older or former leaders Mm. because I think what can happen in consumer organisations is that people rise to the top very quickly if they're shown to have any kind of talent and they've done their thing and there's nowhere really for them to go within the organisation. And so you lose a lot of institutional knowledge. So what does this group do? How are you engaging with them? Yeah, and I I think before before I talk about that, I think the other thing that happens is that Younger people are guilty of, um, you know, rising to the top, as you say, or, you know, getting into a position of, of leadership and then going, oh, I've got all the answers. You know, those those people who've been before me, they got it wrong. I can I can do it better. You know, there's a, there's a little bit of that that goes on too. Um, and so we've been very, very um, clear that what we want to do is actually um, work with that group to bring and so they've they've um, you know they've all obviously um, engaged with the group and and it's and it involves people who have been former presidents people who've been um, on the board for I think it's ten years um, and you know people who've who've had a significant contribution as executive officers or CEOs you know to the organisation. So it's a really great opportunity to to bring particular issues um, to that group and and ask them to advise the board and make recommendations to the board about what those you know what what they see um, as as you know solutions to particular issues. Um, but we've also given them we've also empowered them to bring issues to us. So it's not just a it's not just a one-way street, um, so they can they can meet, you know, and come up with with particular concerns or issues that they want to share with the board, and and again make recommendations to us. Um, obviously, it's up to the board as to what we do with those, but it's a really fantastic opportunity and um, a a really great way to re-engage some of those people who who really, um, as you say, weren't quite sure how they could contribute. Um, and I'm personally very, very appreciative of their um, support, you know, both formally and informally. In the end, though, I suppose an organisation, any organisation is and should be judged on results. Yeah. So you've got to come up with tangible achievements that make people think, okay, Blind Citizens Australia did this for me. They're an organisation worthy of support. Yeah, absolutely. That is exactly right. And I think that's... You know that's where that's where the proof the proof really comes, and um, I think you know we've been doing some we've been doing some some small things over the past twelve months in the time that um, the new board's been in place um, to to sort of re-engage with members. That's been our primary um, our primary activity, I suppose. And you know, we've been doing some some small but really, I think, important things. Like, for example, we have a, a national weekly radio program, um, and you know, there were a number of of younger people who said, "Look, we we really need a new theme, and we want a blind person to be, um, you know, writing and recording that theme." And so that's something that we did. We, you know, we we demonstrated that we'd heard that. Um, we also had a leaders summit. Um, last year where we brought young and experienced leaders together to talk about you know what what do they want from the organization and and what are the the key strategies that um, 
you know, that they want us to work on. And all of those have been captured, you know, through our new strategic plan and, you know, we're working on those as we speak. So, you know, I think people generally are starting to see some tangible um, results. And even with things like um, we've got a new touchscreen FPOS terminal called Albert um, in Australia, and even with things like assisting people to lodge complaints um, if they've had difficulty using that um, that technology, which is actually accessible, but the vendor has to turn on the accessibility feature. And then there's a tutorial that people have to um, listen to if they've never used it before. So there are there are a whole lot of issues with that. So we've been supporting people to to lodge complaints. So you know, I think people are starting to see some tangible. Um, some tangible results and I think the the conventions have been a really great you know opportunity to re-engage with people as well so so it's exciting and I think there are exciting times ahead as well. Yes it does feel like you're aided by some pretty robust disability discrimination legislation where you really can get some inquiries, some interventions, some quite clear rulings with with teeth that say, okay, this is discrimination and it's got to change. Yeah, we are to a point. Um, I mean, it's still a very um, arduous, well, actually the process of, of lodging a complaint itself is not is not onerous, um, but it is still, there is, there is still a fairly lengthy process that you have to go through to conciliate a complaint, assuming the, um, you know, assuming the person that you're actually making the complaint against or the company is is willing to conciliate. Um, but but nevertheless, um, I think you know we are fortunate to have um, the discrimination legislation or the anti-discrimination legislation that we do have. Um, but people still do require. Um, often require significant support to go through that process and and to feel like you know they've got um, plenty of support behind them in in those processes because they can actually be quite daunting to sit, sit in a room and conciliate a complaint with with a, an individual or an organization so um, it's a shame that you know the onus is still on the complainant to prove the validity of their complaint um, but you know, I think um, that's something that we that we have to live with. When we spoke with Clive last week, we talked about a tendency in this country, which seems to me to be replicated in a number of others, where the primary blindness agency, and you have one in Australia now, like we do in New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, Canada has one, Britain has one, they seem to have decided somewhat unilaterally that they have a mandate or a right to get involved in public policy advocacy, actually Mm. taking positions on legislative and community issues well beyond what's in their interests. And obviously Mm. any organisation has the right to lobby in Mm. the interests of of the services they provide or whatever. Mm. Mm -hmm. But but it's going way beyond that now into social policy issues that Mm. don't affect them as as an organisation but affect Mm. individual blind people. Mm. Why is this happening and is Blind Citizens Australia concerned about that um yeah look i think i can't really necessarily answer the question as to why it's happening um i mean i i just think that um but i do think personally i think that the um the best 
the best advocates for um, policy, social policy, uh, are people who are blind or vision impaired themselves. Um, I think there are a number of problems that arise when service providers move into the realm of of advocacy. Um, I mean, you know, first of all, I don't, I don't think that, um, and this is not to diminish the individuals who are working in those areas because some of them are, are very good, but um, I do think that uh, the best, the best way to develop a position on on these sorts of issues is to have a consumer voice like BCA with the mechanisms in place that have, you know, stood the test of time in terms of making sure that the policies that we develop are actually speaking on behalf of the broadest possible cross-section of people who are blind vision impaired. Um, I think the second problem with it is that sometimes when service providers um, advocate for, um, you know, particular issues, um, there's actually a conflict of interest in doing so, you know, because, for example, if if a service provider uh, has, for example, been consulting around, you know, the accessibility of a particular product or, or whatever it is, um, and, you know, the advice that they've given perhaps hasn't been taken up, and then they end up finding themselves advocating on the other side of the fence, you know, that can, that can be, it can be a very murky and dangerous, dangerous place to be, I think. Um, so I, I, I tend to, to think that um, it would be good if, if the consumer organisations um, could have the lead, play the lead role in in terms of advocacy, um, because that's what we're that's what we're here to do. That's our mission. Yeah, you're, there also seems to be an issue with well, where does the mandate come from? That's right. For an organisation to say what it does, mm. and if Blind Citizens Australia is out there, then chances are good that it's because a resolution has gone all the way to the yep. convention. It's been debated. It's been fine tuned. There's been lots of uh, careful discussion before mm. a position is reached. Uh, otherwise, you have organisations really just making it up on the hoof. Mm, mm, that, and that is a concern. And, I mean, you know, that's not to say that organisations don't do their share of consultation. I mean, I know that Vision Australia consults regularly, but the thing is that, um, you know, not 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 all blind people are members of Vision Australia. Well, not all blind people are members of BCA either, of course, but I think in general terms the mechanisms are in place um, within BCA, as you say, we've got um, a national policy council that you know looks at at these sorts of policies. That's its job, um, and takes you know takes recommendations again to the board. So even outside of conventions, there is a, there is a really strong mechanism for that kind of work to to go on. And we also have an um, an advocacy officer, you know, who's a, a paid staff member. So. You know, I, I just, I just think, I think you're right that the mechanisms are in place and and they should be being being utilised. Um, and service providers, I think their their role really needs to be about providing the services that we that we need. It is true, of course, that um, not all blind people are involved with Vision Australia or receive services from them, but. Vision Australia, and for that matter, agencies around the world, when talking to their local consumer organisation, quite rightly say, well, 
these days, you guys represent a tiny fraction mm. of the membership and actually a dwindling fraction of the membership. It's going down. Mm. Mm. Um, how do you respond to that? Where's your mandate coming from if fewer and fewer people are getting involved in making these decisions about what you advocate for? I think the interesting thing is that, yes, it's true to say that you know fewer people are, are getting involved perhaps. Um, but I think it's always interesting to see that when an issue, you know, really gets people fired up, um, that people do tend to come out of the woodwork. And um, I think that I think that really this is going back to what we were talking about before in terms of engaging people. We just we just have to make sure that people are engaged in the issues that that they care about. You know, I think that's the that's the critical thing. But you look at social media, for example, and you were mm. talking about the importance of Blind Citizens Australia using social media as one tool in the mm. armory for, for reaching people. But social media tends to be to, to be quite grassroots and spontaneous. Yes. And I've seen social media campaigns emerge seemingly out of nowhere where something happens that just angers people. Mm. And through the very fact that they're on social media, mm. uh, a hashtag, say, on Twitter emerges mm. and spontaneously an advocacy campaign begins and yes. sometimes can be very successful. I've actually seen yep. in this country an entire a piece of legislation derailed because yes. of a Twitter campaign. So yes. I guess my question for you is, if that's possible now mm. with social media, can effective advocacy be achieved without a formal structure like a blindness consumer organisation now? I don't think so. I mean, yes, I think in I think there are individual, I, I agree with you, I think there are individual examples where effective advocacy can, can occur. Um, and and sometimes it, it really is very good and and it really does bring people together and it's 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 excellent to see how quickly that stuff can can happen um, but I do still think there's a place for a structured um, body that uh, you know that has an advocacy role because there are campaigns that are as you say very grassroots and they spring up very quickly but we also need opportunities for people to have more, considered long-term um, conversations about policy and about, you know, what they want to see, what their vision is for, um, you know, for blind Australians in 20, 30, 40, 50 years' time. Um, and, you know, social media, you, you can't have those sorts of deeper conversations on social media. And the other thing is that, you know, there's a very significant proportion of our membership still that doesn't even use the internet, let alone social media. So I would be I'd be very cautious about um, you know, ditching the consumer consumer organization um and, and leaving it up to social media. And that's another danger for consumer organizations, isn't it? That if you go gung ho into adopting social media methodologies and other new technologies, there is a danger of leaving people behind who yeah. don't have access because yeah. there is a huge digital divide in the blind community. Yeah, absolutely. And and in fact, um, you know, at the same time as we've been working to build our Facebook and Twitter presence, um, we're also looking at telephone-based options for getting information out to people for that very reason because we're very conscious that we don't want to leave anybody behind just on the basis that they can't afford or don't or don't want to use, you know, a smartphone or a computer. How's the organisation funded at present? Um, <clears throat> we get some funding um, from the Victorian government for advocacy. Um, 
we get some funding from Vision Australia, we get some funding from the Commonwealth Government um, as well, but we, we have lost a significant amount of our um, Commonwealth Government funding in recent years. So that's made that's made it a little bit more challenging. Why is that for us? Um, because the um, the way that the Commonwealth Government has chosen to fund disability organisations has changed, and so they're now funding um, uh, a consortium of of organisations who are you know working together uh, in an alliance rather than um, you know funding individual um, organisations. Um, and they and they've particularly moved away from funding diagnostic specific um, peak organisations at the moment. So, so that's kind of where we're at. Um, but having said that, you know it's a great opportunity for us. I like to see it as a, as a real opportunity for us to think about new sources of funding. We need to think about funding that's coming through as a result of the NDIS. Um, th- we need to think. Uh, about, and we are starting to um, engage with other blindness agencies in Australia to look at what synergies there are with, you know, the work that we do and, um, you know, how we can develop partnerships because, of course, it's not always about just about money. It's about building relationships and um, we're very keen to build relationships with all of the um, service agencies. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of what we're doing. And the, and the other thing is, we're we're very much working towards building. We have a um, a fundraising program where members, you know, can contribute on a monthly basis um, by credit card, and we get on the pack plan. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah. the one. So we're working to um, modernise that program and and you know just make it easier for people to contribute if they want to. Uh, are blind Australians suffering? Do you think from uh, the, the government's generic? approach to disability? Is there a chance that individual uh, issues pertaining to blindness are not being recognised? Oh, I think that's that's always a danger and it's really just um, important for us to keep the pressure on and, and keep reminding government that, you know, that there are specific issues that um, that are specific to blindness and um which is which is why it's absolutely critical that we have an organisation like BCA because you know who better to to keep that pressure on than than us? Yeah, I mean, I presume yeah. you've got closed captioning on TV in Australia. We have. Yeah, we have. So why not audio description? Yeah. It seems. Uh, well, that's... isn't that a case for a discrimination um, action? Well, there's currently a review of the Broadcasting Services Act underway, and so we're we're going down that path of. Um, you know, working to to look at how we can draft some amendments, and we're working, of course, with Vision Australia um, on that, on how we can improve that situation and and um, equalise it with captioning. How would you characterise the relationship with Vision Australia at the present? Then, um, look, I think we've got a we've got a reasonably good relationship with Vision Australia. Um, you know, we do a lot. We work fairly closely together um, on advocacy issues when we can. Um, but, you know, like as with all service providers and consumer organisations, there'll be times when, you know, we won't always agree on things and we are very comfortable with, um, you know, with with speaking out about that if we need to. Um, we have a memor- memorandum of understanding with Vision Australia um, which covers off on, you know, how we'll work together and, and our funding um, and it actually specifically 
you know, states that either organisation, you know, can speak out about issues independently of one another. So, so I think it's fairly robust, and um, I think that you know it's always it's always something that we we need to keep working at. But you know, we had um, Vision Australia speaking at our state, our New South Wales state convention on the weekend, and doing an excellent session on engaging, you know, with clients, particularly in relation to employment and education, and asking for people's opinions and. Um, for their perspectives, so you know, I think um, I think generally it's it's going pretty well. Um, but you know, as I said before, we're very keen to make sure that our relationships are with all the blindness service providers, not not only Vision Australia. It's interesting to hear how the terminology differs around the place. Here in New Zealand, we have just completed a second disability strategy that the yes. government's put together. And in both cases, they started out wanting the sector to refer to themselves as people with disabilities. Yes. And New Zealand disabled people strongly objected uh-huh. to that yep. and did not like the person first language uh-huh. stuff. And we insisted, demanded we be called disabled, disabled people. people. People here are called blind people. Yep. You don't do that over there. No, we seem to have adopted the person first approach. I mean, I know having travelled a bit you know, to the UK and so forth. Um, I understand the rationale to be that um, the reason that you use disabled people is because it is society which which disables people um, and puts barriers in place which prevent people from, you know, leading the lives that they, you know, want. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing it again. Well, yeah, well, I'm doing it again. <laughs> I see. I, I don't even think it's that convoluted. I tell you, my, and I wrote a blog post on this. But my opinion about this is that if you convolute the language too much, mm-hmm. then it actually stifles open, open honest communication because yep. people feel nervous about yep. what to say. Yep. And if I said, you know, um, here is a a person with shortness yes. walking down the street, yes. yeah. or here's a person with here's a woman with beauty. Um, yes. and, you know, you'd kind of think what? And so, you know, blindness. Just saying, here's a blind person. Yeah. It it emphasizes yeah. it as just one particular characteristic. Yeah. Yeah. If you have to go through the linguistic hoops of saying a yeah. person who is blind, yeah. it draws attention yeah. to it more than it otherwise yes, would. Yes, it's really interesting. It's a debate that I have regularly, particularly in the cross kind of disability space that I work in. Um, And I often say that personally, I don't really care what you call me. I just want you to talk to me. Right. Um, But that's my personal view. Um, I understand all the, understand all the reasons for person first language. I understand all the reasons for, for wanting to be called a disabled person. Um, But I, I, my take on it personally is I just would, I just don't want the language to get in the way of people feeling comfortable to have a exactly conversation. Right. You know, yeah. given how how much fear still surrounds disability, um, you know, we really don't want to do anything to stifle. To but have, stifle yes, the exactly. And have you noticed how many people are nervous about using the word "blind" these days, yes. as if it's some sort of offensive yes, term? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and and I think the, the person first language has a lot to do with that. Yes, and some of the funny funny things people come up with to. To Unsighted. avoid saying blindness, is- <laughs> <laughs> visually challenged. Ah, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's just it's interesting the way visually these- diminished. The other yes. Day. <laughs> <laughs> 
When did you become president of Blind Citizens Australia? Um, in October last year. So, so a year in now. Yeah. Yeah. How have you found the role? Is it is it is it about what you expected? Um. Yeah. Yes. It's been. Look. It's about as full on as I expected. I I gave a lot of thought to whether this was the right time for me to um, become president of the organisation, partly because I knew that the organisation was in a was in a period of transition and that. Um, to take it on would mean that it would be a fairly significant workload. But I also have two children, um, one's eight and one's 13, and so I really did have to give a, a lot of thought to it, given I also travel for my day job. Um, but, you know, look, I just, I'm just really excited by um, the future and the possibilities, and um, I, it is a lot of work, but I have a fantastic board um, and they're everybody's really working well together and starting to sort of settle into their. We've all got areas of strategic responsibility, so everybody has a role, and um, so you know I think over time it's it's starting to to settle down. Unfortunately, we um, lost our CEO uh, in August, and so that sort of um, meant that we've we've got a, a temporary chief operations officer on board. And, um, you know, so that's, whilst that sort of has been a, a change that we've had to manage, it's also a great opportunity for us to look at the structure of the organisation and look at, you know, whether the structure is right, whether we've got the um, the balance right in terms of staffing and so forth. So um, I, I guess, yeah, there are challenges, but I just like to see them as opportunities and get on with it really you talked about your day job and it's nice to just learn a bit about you as an individual what do you do outside of blind citizens um the ceo of an organization called arts access australia and arts access australia is um, the peak national body for arts and disability and we advocate for the rights of people with disability whether they be um, as artists, as audiences, or as arts workers or, or leaders in the arts and cultural sector. So um, it's a really exciting job. Um, I get to do lots of really exciting, you know, um, travel and talking with government, talking with arts and cultural organisations about improving access um, and, you know, just, just really... Um, a very broad remit um, around, you know, um, people's experience of the arts and and making it making it better and raising awareness. So, it's um yeah, it's a busy but very exciting. Role. And you're also an accomplished musician in your own right as well. Yeah, yeah. So in my spare time, yeah. um, <laughs> I, I'm a singer songwriter, and um, I released an album in 2015 called Fine Line and it's really um so I moved to from Brisbane to Tasmania and in 2012 and I hadn't been writing for a long time before that because my roles with um Arts Access Australia and before that Access Arts in in Queensland had meant that I felt like I couldn't really practice because I felt like it was a conflict of interest that if I was representing artists I couldn't be one. Um, and then when I moved um, and I met a number of people who were actually practicing artists, but also arts managers, and I thought, I thought, hmm, maybe I could 
do this. So I started writing, and I think just being in a new place um, sort of set me off, and I started to write, and I started to write a lot about, um, very subtly, but about the advocacy work that I was doing. Um, for example, I wrote a song about audio description on TV called When You're Older, and it was kind of like an open letter to the TV executives about the fact that one day they might go blind too and then they'd be screwed because they wouldn't have yeah. audio description. Um, but, you know, so I I guess I found it to be a really great outlet where I could say some of the things that sometimes I wanted to say publicly but was a bit constrained by my various roles in being able to say um quite as bluntly as sometimes I would like. So um so yeah that that's kind of where it started and then I um I got some funding to to make the album and then decided that if I was going to make an album it was going to have to be accessible. Um and so I got the cover audio described and and put um an audio version and a, and a text version of the cover notes on my website so that people can access it. So, um, so yeah, it was a really enjoyable process. Um, I don't know how I fitted it in looking back, but um, <laughs> but it was a very enjoyable process. And well, they always say if you want something done, ask a busy person, that's don't right. they? So. They, do. Yeah. they do. And you're everywhere, mate. You're on iTunes, <laughs> you're in Apple Music and um, Spotify. Yes. All over the place. Yeah, so yeah. it's easy for people to dial up your music and yes. have a listen. Yes. It must be hard for artists, though, with services like that, right? Yeah, it is. Um, but I, there, there are two schools of thought, you know, that that artists seem to have. Some musicians will say, oh, you know, don't put my music on Apple Music because I want people to buy it. Um, as an artist who, you know, I'm not, I don't have a huge profile. Um, my work is fairly niche, I suppose. So I just see it as a great opportunity for people to hear the music. And, I, and I'm just, I, I feel quite comfortable with the fact that if people really like it, they'll buy it. Um, and if they don't, well, I hope they can sleep at night knowing that they haven't paid me. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but um, but you know, I mean, I just think it's a great. I love Apple Music, so I'd be the last one to, I'd be the last one to be hypocritical about about that. It's just so nice to be able to you know search for your favorite song and just play it. Now, the song When You're Older about audio description, yeah. does that feature on the album? It does. Okay. Yeah. So maybe we could finish the interview by playing it. Would that yeah. be all right? Yeah, sure. You're not going to sue me for playing no. your stuff on my podcast? No. Uh, no, no that's good. I thought <laughs> a bit of check. <laughs> now, that, it's, it's great to catch up with you. For people who would like to know more about you and the organisation, can you give us a couple of website details? Yeah. So BCA... Um, has a website, of course, and it's you just go to www.bca.org.au. Um, and if you want to learn more about Arts Access Australia, the website is just artsaccessaustralia.org, no.au on that one. Um, and if you want to find out more about me and my music, um, you just go to emmabennisonmusic.com um, or I have a Facebook page as well, which is just called Emma Benison Music. You make things happen and you're making a difference and that's always wonderful. So I appreciate you spending some time talking with us and, and having you here. It's been it's been fun. The time has flown by. It's been really nice to catch up and um and, and really nice to to be here. So thanks for having me, Jonathan. Don't you worry, it's okay. It's not your problem anyway. 
can't let words get in the way of vision But I wonder what you think when you're older Cause this might come back to bite When you're sitting in your armchair Staring at the screen And there's no end in sight Well I wonder what you think when you're older Searching for the pictures in the lines I wonder what you think when you're older Wonder if you wish it changed your mind It's out of mind and out of sight Well it's just another human ride and it's Hey 
Throughout history, music has played such a powerful role in protest. Great to hear some disability-related stuff coming through. The talented Emma Benison, a song she performed and wrote herself called When You're Older. It's from her album Fine Line, which is available in all the good music repositories. That's it from The Blind Side this week. See you next week. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.